Oh God, that that's a that's a Jeb question. Um, ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't You're listening do to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, a critical examination of the world of pseudo-archaeology and the misrepresentation of archaeology in the world today. Each episode, we focus the lens of archaeology on a topic and discuss reality versus fantasy. We've covered everything from ancient aliens to crystal skulls, from DNA to modern fakes. Join us for our discussion this week and get ready to think critically. Digging in a trench, monuments, going to the pub when the day is spent. Hey everyone and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host, Sarah Head, and I am joined today with my co-host, Jennifer Raff. Hello, how's it going? Hi, Sarah. Doing well. How are you? I'm great. And... People may remember that Jennifer is our special guest co-host who comes on to talk to us about ancient DNA and genetics because she's an expert in that. And we have Jennifer on today because two new articles have dropped recently that talk about uh, ancient DNA and the peoplings of the um, the Americas or just North America? Uh, The Americas. A lot of the uh, research is focused on South America and Central America, actually. So, yeah. 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 So, uh, so Jennifer, you're you're going to tell us about these two papers, you know, as as much as you can in an hour, <laughs> and uh, we're gonna we're gonna find out how we're related to aliens. Correct? Uh, we are not. No, because <laughs> <laughs> it's never aliens. <laughs> oh man! Sorry. I know it would be cool, <laughs> but no. Um, the, these papers are uh, well. We get a new paper out just about every week, right? It seems like that. And so trying to keep track of what new developments uh, are going on in the world of uh, ancient DNA and human genetics is, um, well, it's my full-time job right now. So uh, I'm happy to talk to people about it and try and see if I can clarify some things um, as much as I understand them. These papers are dense. So, yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, if they're like the site reports I've seen sometimes, I can imagine. I know, like, uh, a good site report can be up to, like, 100 pages or more. So I, how bad is this thing? Uh, how bad are these things? These were so big that the journalists who sent them to me to read uh, and comment on before they got published, um, before the embargo was lifted, they had to send them in Dropbox <laughs> because they couldn't just email them as PDFs to me. So they're pretty, they're pretty big. It's, it's a lot of graphs, though, and, um, it, you know, extended data. So supplementary tables and charts and all sorts of stuff. So, um, but I think that the meat of the paper is really only about six, uh, 60 pages. I don't know. Something like that. That's, uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. It's only yeah. 60 pages. <laughs> yeah. Of which I think something like 20 gets published in the, you know, journal, the main journal text. So, yeah. Right. But it's good that they're, they've got it all there. And I mean, everybody likes a good chart. So oh, yeah. unfortunately we will oh, yeah. not be able to share this with our, our listeners, but um might be able to link you to where the p- journals were published if you want to go pay for them yeah paywalls yikes yeah it's <laughs> unfortunate yeah so okay so which paper do you want to kind of delve into first because you 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 wrote about both of these papers for forbes and your article for forbes is that live today or live tomorrow live today it just came out um i published it just before i left work so it came out about two hours ago so okay sweet so but Mainly is by the time you're hearing this, you should be able to go read. Oh, yes. Actually, by the time you're reading this, we'll probably be thinking something completely different about the peopling of the Americas. So. That's what keeps things exciting, though. I mean, this this is actually really exciting because it's such a fast-paced field. It's a lot more fast-paced than archaeology is, and you guys seem like you publish a lot faster than we do normally. You're not, ar- you're not, not archaeologists. It's just you're not dealing with artifacts you're dealing with actual like building blocks right so. right it, it is a very different pace and and that's something i've really only come to appreciate recently when i'm you know trying to work on this this book i'm writing and i'm trying to meld sort of the archaeology data with the genetics data and so i keep talking to archaeologists and i'm like well is this you know this book that you published in 2004 is that still you know current and they're like well yeah 
Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay, sorry. In, in genetics terms, that would be way out of date. So, you know, it's uh, it's something to, to think about for me anyway and keep in mind as I'm trying to. To be entirely fair, though, as someone who's who's been doing a lot of research this semester, it's a, a paper or a book that is 10 years old is kind of out of date for archaeology in general. The problem is, is we just got to get our stuff out. Uh, yeah. Well, I hear that. I'm very slow to publish, too. So it's uh, unfortunate. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, these papers. So um, so there's two that so there's actually three that came out last week, but I'm going to I'm ready to talk about two of them. I haven't delved deeply into the third. Um, so the first of them is um, by David Reich's group. Um, and it's called Reconstructing the Deep Population History of Central and South America. Cool. Yeah, it is. It's really cool. Um, I think what's neat about these two papers, especially, is that we've had less attention paid to Central and South America um, than to North America from a paleogenomics perspective. There have been studies um, out there, but not on the same scale as um, North America. And so I'm excited that you know, it's getting more attention. I am eager to learn more myself because Central and South America are definitely not my areas of expertise. And so uh, that's why it was so neat to read these two papers. Um, well, how come we don't see very much come out of there? I don't know. I, I'm not sure okay. if it's just because people are really, these big labs are really excited about the initial peopling events and those really early stages in those events all kind of took place in Beringia, Siberia, um, and, you know, Northern North America. Um, or if they just haven't uh, gotten access to samples in South America, I'm not, I'm not really sure what the, what the story is there, but um, okay. yeah, obviously South America and Central America are super important the history of the Americas. And, you know, it, really critical that we understand. So I'm glad to, to see the attention paid to them. Um, yeah, so, so the first paper is, uh, like I said, by David Reich's group, and are giving, they're reporting genomic data, so genome-wide ancient DNA from 49 individuals. I mean, that's huge. If you think about the <laughs> earlier papers in this field, you know, people were publishing, uh, you know, a nature or science paper on the basis of one genome, and now we're, yeah. now we're on the level of, you know, talking about 49, so that's amazing. Uh, and they're looking at um, these individuals from Belize and Brazil and uh, Central Andes. I'm just looking at the abstract right now. <laughs> so, right, right, right. Just to remind myself. Um, and uh, it's one of the major questions that they were testing was, um, did this other paper that came out previously this year, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> That's a pretty good turnaround, though. Yeah, it seems like. It seems like it was like two years ago, but it only came out a few months ago, really. Um, that reports, oh gosh, how do I explain this? Um, okay, so listeners may or may not know that uh, all ancient Native Americans uh, who've been looked at on a genome-wide level uh, fall into sort of one of two clades or genes groupings. And, and these two clades uh, have been historically called... Um, Northern Native Americans and Southern Native Americans. The Southern Native I feel like those are I feel like those are really complicated terms. Yes, they are. And and Southern Native <laughs> American is not just referring to like Central and South Americans, but it actually encompasses most of North America too. So oh, all right. you know, we've talked about um, on previous podcasts, I think, um, the Anzic child, right? The the first right. clove the only uh, known so far, I think Clovis burial and the only known genome from um, from that time period. Um, the Anzig child was belongs to the Southern uh, Native American clade. Okay. So there was a paper that came out, uh, and, and and I should point out that the Anzig site is in Montana, so that kind of tells you <laughs> something about how widespread that that clade is. Um, right. So, so there was a paper that came out um, earlier this year, uh, which was by uh, Shai Bettle. I hope I'm pronouncing her name, her last name right. They found that instead of a sort of simple division of uh, ancient Native Americans into these northern groups, they instead found two branches of ancestry that roughly correspond to those, I think, if I'm understanding it right. And those are called Ancestral A and Ancestral B. 
This game. <laughs> so an, ancestral B corresponds to the Northern Native American and ancestral A corresponds to the Southern Native American branch. But what they found in this paper was that Central and South Americans are actually not just homogenous ancestry A, but they're mixtures of ants A and ants B. Now, I mean, I, I am not a geneticist. Let's just throw that out there. I feel like that shouldn't be that surprising. Well, it shouldn't be surprising that that there's complexity and multiple populations and population movements and, and all kinds of complicated histories going on in Central and South America and North America, too. Um, what was surprising was that previously thought of was that of these two major clades being sort of geographically structured uh, didn't hold true. But so the the Reich Lab revisited this question with their gazillion genomes uh, from Central and South America, and what they found was that in fact that signal of multiple ancestries in South America went away when they added additional genomes. Don't ask me how that works; I have no idea. <laughs> but- so you're saying. <laughs> You're saying when they added more people to the genome, the genome became less diverse? Uh, it's not that it became less diverse, but it. Um, think about it this way. When you, when you try and recreate population histories using just a few genomes uh, from just a few geographic locations, you're inferring a whole bunch about unsampled regions. And the picture becomes a lot clearer when you start to add in more data from those regions. I guess that's the best way I can explain it. Um, So they found that they also found a couple of other findings, which I think are really, really interesting. Um, So when they looked at ANZIC and they looked at the oldest individuals in uh, Chile and Brazil and Belize, um, they found a very close relationship between them. Okay. So you think about the geographic separation between those populations. Um, that's pretty interesting, right? That they would be so closely related. And right. what th- the way they interpret it, and I think this is correct, is that the uh, initial peopling um, of, of the Americas, a very, very rapid event, um, and that there may have been additional gene flow events, perhaps, um, since that initial peopling, or it may be that that shared ancestry represents the initial peopling. Um, it's really kind of hard. Um, but certainly now when you're saying that there were initial peoplings, that means that the Polynesians and the Chinese and the Vikings were all coming over, correct? Yes, right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, no evidence for that. Oh, well, well, okay. So we do also have to talk about the Australian. Yeah, I was going to say there is a really, uh, there is an interesting little one that you've got there that I want to talk about. So Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> uh, so Pontus Skoglin, um, I think in 2015 or maybe 2016, I can't quite remember, um, found when he was analyzing the genomes of some contemporary populations in uh, the Amazon region, he found that weirdly some of these populations were more closely related to Australo-Melanesian populations uh, than, than other populations in South America. So if you think about it, you know, you compare all these populations in South America against this sort of outgroup, and they showed greater affinity, some of them show greater affinity with the Australo-Melanesians. That's kind of- So what you're saying is, is there's a, there's a group in Southern, in, in, in South America that is genetically related to somehow yes. in the deep past, genetically related to the same genome line that we find in the Australian and the Polynesian areas. Yeah, that they share a distant common ancestor. Um, okay. Maybe. <laughs> uh, this is very, this was really surprising. And everybody right now is just scratching their heads about this. Because, but it's just this one group, right? Yeah, it's, I think it was a couple of groups, but in the same area. Um, I can't remember. I'd have to pull up that paper to look at it off the top of my head. But the Surui gotcha. are one of them. Um, and I think there's a couple of other Amazonian groups, um, but not all South American populations. Um, so it's very strange. And, you know, you can, 
And then Eski Willer's lab, we haven't talked about his paper yet, but he also found evidence, his group also found evidence for this signal in some populations in, in, in the Amazonian region. So there's been this, they actually also found evidence for it in um, the Aleutians, the, uh, the Aleutian Islanders, which is, you know, relevant to my interest because I kind of work up there. But okay. um, that seems to have been a, uh, an artifact of analysis because, um, well, I won't get into the details, but there, because of the way they had to analyze the, the Aleuts, it seems as though that signal is not actually genuine. Okay. okay. So, <laughs> so it was a false positive there. Yeah, basically. I, I think so. So, but w- to come back to this question, you know, if, if there is some shared ancestry, some affinity, genetic affinity between these, um, certain Amazonian groups and Australomelanesians um, that, you know, there's a couple of different potential explanations for that. One of them might be that people went across the Pacific ocean and, you know, moved to to South America and and lived there. And, and you see that signal in some populations because those are the ones that they intermarried with. We can pretty well rule that one out. I know that's the explanation everybody kind of jumps to, but yeah, and yeah. I I feel like that's the definite. I I feel like that's the explanation that you're going to see start going across a lot of the fringe groups. Yes, yes, um, for sure. Because they're not going to read beyond that point. Exactly. They're going to stop at the. There's a commonality, and that's going to be the end of that conversation. Right, for them. right. But in fact, um, the geneticists who did this analysis ruled that out because. This signal is so faint and subtle and old um, that it is much, much more consistent with the notion that there was a population in Beringia at the time of sort of pre before the initial founding of the Americas, the initial peopling of the Americas. And that population somehow gave rise to some South American populations, but not others. Okay, so that seems a little far fetched, maybe, but increasingly what we're starting to see is that the Beringian population, the, that the ancestral population actually may have been quite genetically structured. That is to say there might have been multiple related but distinct populations present in Beringia during the last ice age or the last glacial maximum. Okay. And so and, and that's that will bring us to the next paper as well. Um, but the takeaway from David Reich's paper here, or, or his group's paper, is that they did not find this signal of Australo-Melanesian ancestry in any other of the ancient populations that they looked at in this paper. And so they're starting to question, is this even a real signal? At least I think that's how okay. I interpret their, their paper. They're starting to question, is this a real signal, or have we just not sampled the right ancient populations to show that it extended back into the past? Okay, so let's let's go to break real quick because you said this leads into the next paper. So let's go on break, and when we come back, let's jump into the next paper and connect these two ideas. Sounds good. Digging in a trench, monuments, going to the pub when the We hope you're enjoying this episode. Please be sure to check out the show notes at www.archiefantasies.com for further information about our hosts, guests, and topics in this episode. This podcast is listener-supported, and we appreciate every donation, either in the time it takes you to rate and share this episode, or monetarily on Patreon and Ko-fi. You can connect with us on the blog, by email, or on Twitter, thanks to all of our supporters. And let's get back to the show. Dinosaurs, raise your trials as one will call. No, we don't do dinosaurs. And we are back. And Jennifer, you were saying there's a you want to connect these two papers together because we were talking about a mysterious signal that definitely shows proof of European ancestry <laughs> in early Native American peoples. I'm completely making that up. Please do not think that I am telling you the truth. But you you did want to connect this signal. Yeah. Um, yeah. This sort of Australasian signal that's very mysterious. Okay. So right. So David Reich's group didn't find evidence for this in any of the ancient populations that they looked at. And in fact, they found, I think, oh gosh, I hope I remember this right, that if they removed the Surui from their analysis, that signal went away. So they, I think, are concluding that it's an artifact of the analysis or sampling or something. Now, when you say that, what does that mean? Like, um, if you were to explain that to someone who doesn't understand sampling... 
what does that artifact of the analysis mean? Um, I think to explain it in the best layperson's terms I could, it, it has to do with, well, which samples, which populations you're looking at genomically will bias your results, may bias your results. Obviously, geneticists think the more populations, the better, because then we don't have these huge sampling gaps and we have right. more ancestors represented, right? Um, but we also have to take into account population structure and um, if we're looking at modern populations are we looking at populations that are heavily admixed or intermarried with outside groups like Europeans and that I think was kind of the problem with um, some of the signals that were seen in uh, earlier studies um, that are have since been decided to not be quite real they were based on genomes of people that were um, had high percentages of European ancestry as well as, you know, ancient Native American ancestry. And so when you're saying that they're pulling from these populations, um, are they pulling from, because this is probably something we should have discussed earlier, are they pulling these samples from currently living modern people or are they pulling these samples from ancestor bones? So these two papers... Or whatever they have. The, the answer is both. Um, okay. So these two papers are focused mostly on ancient DNA. Um, and, oh, we should, have some, we should talk about the ethics. Don't let me forget. There's some interesting ethical issues here. Um, but these are also... The signals were first discovered, I believe, in contemporary populations. Um, so, you know, when you do these kinds of analyses, if you're trying to understand deep population history, specifically in the Americas, you try to mask... Um, any ancestry that was derived from outside groups. But if right. you have a ton of ancestry from outside groups, that masking could take up a big percentage of the genome. And so that may bias the results in certain ways. Um, and that's about all I can tell you because I am not a bioinformatician. <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, to get back to this. So, so the take home is um, David Reich's group looked at some ancient populations in Central and South America, did not see evidence for um, that ancestry that australia asian signal but okay. you know they're not obviously looking at every population in south america so that brings us to the paper by sk willerslev's group um and they looked at other population uh, other ancient individuals from populations throughout central and south america and one of these was um the lagoa santa population um, so the Lagoa Santa individuals um, are from this site in Brazil. I've actually been there. It's an amazing site. Um, and that is, if, if your uh, listeners know about uh, Luzia, the um, ancient woman, the probably the oldest individual in the Americas from whom we have remains, um, she's from that site. And Lagoa Santa is really an interesting um, site because both Lucia and uh, others from that site, which dates to about, I want to say about 10,000 years old. So between like 10.4 and 9.8 thousand years old. Nice. Yeah. It's very old. Um, so they, the individuals from that site have that really unusual cranial morphology that you see typical of the oldest individuals in the Americas. Now, what can you describe that? You could describe this morphology at all. Um, Are we talking? Because we're not talking wrapped heads here. Like no, no, no. Cranial it, it, deformity. No, not we're deformity, talking about. Yeah, there. Um, I, you know, I, I wouldn't do, not do it justice to do it in a. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not very good at cranio, <laughs> cranial <laughs> morphology. I've got to admit, um, and my bioanthropology professors would be embarrassed right now. But um, I, <laughs> I'll say this, the it, it looks markedly different from um, later ancient Native Americans and from contemporary Native Americans. So originally, this was interpreted, this cranial morphology is so distinctive, was interpreted as evidence that these individuals had ancestry from another population, that they came from somewhere else, and that they were not particularly closely related to later Native Americans. Um, okay. That's been kind of referred to as the Paleo-American hypothesis. Or sorry, which, yeah, Paleo-American hypothesis, yeah. Which I would like to point out to, to our listeners that in the absence of genetics, morphology is kind of what we had to go with. Yes. So yeah. this is not an unusual thing to happen for us to have things divided up by the way they look. And then for the geneticists to come in with their fancy computers <laughs> and start telling us how wrong we are, 
But, I mean, to have this correction is good because this also tells us how diverse a population can be yes. visual. Yes. So I, I tend to be very critical of sort of this morphological approach, but it is true that we didn't have anything else in, in previous right. you know, So, you know, I, I think I should probably temper, temper my critical. <laughs> Until recently, approach. it was the best we That's had. Right. That's right. Now, you know, it has also led to some pretty shady, it, it nasty theological stuff, which you've talked about before. Yes. Anyway, so, so Lagoa Santa has always been of interest because it's been, you know, held up as, oh, this is a representative population of that unusual group. And that unusual group has been um, cited as coming from, uh, you know, Southeast Asia or Africa. I know you guys, we, you know, we did a, a discussion about, um, you know, potential African connections to South America and Central America. Right. The, the Olmecs. That's right. You might be familiar with. That's right. So it all, all sorts of different populations have been proposed as being ancestral to um, individuals with this cranial um, shape. So this is where it gets complicated. And I hope I do justice and not tangle this all up. Individuals from Lagoa Santa show according to first love's group, this Australasian ancestry. Okay. That they, does not. Now is it, is it actually ancestry or is it shared ancestor? Uh, share it's shared. We think it's, we think of it as shared distant ancestor, right? So don't think of it as, yeah, that's a really good point. Don't think of it as, uh, they're not a descent group. They have not. a, they have like an uncle. They have, they have an uncle shared, in common. I would even say like great, 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 great grandparent. Right. So they have a, they okay. both descend probably from, population in Siberia that was ancestral to both groups, right? So think about it that way. Um, If it's even real, which is, you know, maybe the question that's in everybody's mind. It's up in the air. Yeah, it's it's up in the air. Well, so David Reich's group did not find this ancestry in any uh, ancient people of South America, but Eski Willerslev's group says that they have found it in Lagoa Santa. So everybody's ears prick up because, you know, you think, oh my God, that's proof of this Paleo-American hypothesis, right? Because we said that they had different cranial morphologies and they're showing this ancestry. That's it. We've solved it. No, <laughs> not what it shows. And <laughs> I'm going to try to do justice and explain this. Um, it is not a marker for this Australian, Australian signal is not net related to this cranial morphology. And I can see everybody going, what? It isn't because we know we have genomes from other people with this cranial morphology and they do not have that ancestry, right? So if those two things were linked, we would see that Australian Australasian signal in every person with that cranial morphology and we don't. Okay. We only see it in Lagoa Santa. That's it. So that's weird. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it also... Um, refutes that hypothesis. I think that hypothesis was refuted ages ago anyway by um, the, the Paleo-American hypothesis was refuted a- anyway um, by other genetic studies showing that there's no ancestry for many outside groups um, like, you know, the Africans or whatever. But uh, it was most um, profoundly uh, rejected by looking at uh, Kennewick man or the ancient one's genome. And Kennewick man has that morphology, right? We talk about it all the time. This is why people kept calling him European because he looks so different. But So you're saying Kennewick man and Louisa have the same cranial morphology? They, they, so they look alike? I don't know how closely they look, but they're both assigned to this group. Paleo. Okay. So, you know, um, you know, specifically how closely how closely related do they look? I'm not sure, but they definitely have both been assigned to this group. And Kennewick man shows not a trace of that Australasian signal. So, okay. Yeah. So that's interesting. And I, I, it's just both of both sets of authors in both sets of papers rejected this hypothesis. I think it's pretty well refuted at this point. It does not necessarily uh, stop this, you know, the, the, this notion doesn't settle this notion of Australasian, that's still a real open question. Where is that from? What is that? So my feeling, just the take home from this is, my feeling is, if it's a real signal, and, you know, should be tested um, with more genes, if it's a signal, it probably reflects um, the, I think, a that is to say, multiple 
groups of Siberians uh, moved, in, some carrying uh, traces of ancestry that they shared with what would later become Australian Melanesian populations or descent from a common ancestor with populations, um, but not all of them carrying that. And they move in Indonesia, and they live in these different refugia popul- different refugia locations. Um, What's and- a, just hang on. I have a couple of questions. <laughs> just okay, terminology sorry. questions. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Um, I just want to recap. So what you're saying is um, you think this the this odd genome marker that's popping up is evidence of multiple migrations across the Bering Strait. So yes? not quite. Not quite. Okay. 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 So so I think for a long time, and, and we still kind of think about it this way, many of us is that the peopling of the Americas was an event that started in Siberia. People migrate across the Bering Land Bridge and into the Americas. That's not really how we think about it these days. Um, What we think about instead was if you combine uh, paleoclimate constructions and genomic evidence, um, this model emerges where it's not so much that the Bering Strait was a land bridge, but as I like to say, it was more of a lost continent, right? So we always like to talk about lost continents. Well, Beringia oh, is a good, good Lord, candidate. now I'm going to have people. Yes. Now it's Atlantis. Do you, do you realize <laughs> you, you are forming an argument on my show for Atlantis. Uh-huh. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> if people want to call Beringia Atlantis, I don't have a problem with that, but I don't think it's I do. they thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's awesome. So, so, okay, so let me justify this. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> we have evidence genomically that the ancestors of Native Americans, they weren't themselves Native American genetically or culturally or in any kind of identifiable way, but they were the ancestors, that they lived isolated from all other populations for some extended period of time, you know, maybe five to nine thousand years, who knows, um, in a in, in isolation somewhere during the last glacial maximum um, where it was super cold and importantly, super dry all around the world, especially in the Northern latitudes, it was very, very difficult to live. You have um, basically desert conditions all over the place and including, including in Siberia. It was not that also, but that means in the Siberia area because it's cold and dry. That means there's a lot of ice, but a lot of land exposed. Uh, yeah, because ice, ice, especially in North America, right? Remember that we have glaciers like completely covering right. America, and that blocks anybody from moving down during that time. But because so much sea ice bound up, in, you know, so much water is bound up in ice, bound up in the ice. Yeah, yeah. You've got the you've got that land connection exposed between Siberia and North America. Well, okay. we know that people got isolated somewhere. And some people argue for Siberia, but I am starting to go with paleo, well, not starting, I've been thinking about this for a while. Paleoclimate reconstructions show that certain parts of Beringia, the Bering, quote unquote Bering Land Bridge, were actually pretty decent places to live, relatively speaking, especially down along the south central margin um, near what would be present day Aleutian Islands, really. It was warmer, it was wetter, there, there were probably more productive in terms of animals and plants so people could have perhaps lived in these areas which we call refugia for okay. these extended periods of time and it they most likely probably didn't just one place there were probably little pockets of them across this territory right okay so that could account for population structure i think and might explain the signal we're seeing which is subtle right all native americans have ancestry from common metapopulation, but um, there are, we're starting to see subtle differences when we look deeply into the genomes, and that explains these different groups, potentially. So, so you is, think that these groups that were in, that were in these different, uh, these different pockets, were there long enough to start genetically becoming different? Or perhaps they moved into these areas already being slightly genetically differentiated from one okay. another. Okay. Yeah. I mean, okay. we're not talking huge differences, right? But they are distinct right, right, right. when you look at complete genomes because they're, that's a very, very high level of resolution. So after, you know, uh, pathways opened up, after the glaciers began to melt, people could start moving to uh, the American continents proper. And, and I like to stress uh, when I talk about these things that it was really then that we see the emergence of Native Americans as a genetic um, 
group as a, and, and indeed as a cultural group or multiple cultural groups. So, you know, when, when uh, indigenous Americans talk about being truly indigenous to these continents, they're right. I mean, the genetic evidence supports that. There, we don't see the emergence of Native American genetic variants um, until they're really in the Americas or just outside of Beringia. So that's, um, I think that's a really cool area where uh, sort of indigenous knowledge, oral tradition, and genetics all kind of fit together pretty nicely. That, um, is, that is a neat little overlap. That, yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so... So that's kind of the model for the peopling of the Americas that we're, as we're thinking about it these days. So, I, you know, it's not that Native Americans come from somewhere else. It's that they have ancestry from this population that lived in Beringia, right? And that population itself may have been structured and have sort of complicated genetic um, uh, pictures. There's a whole lot more to this, though, <laughs> which I don't know <laughs> if we have time in this segment to talk about, but uh that's one of the really cool finds from this Willard Group's paper was not just the evidence of this Australomelan ancestry in um, uh, in Lagoas, individuals from Lagoa Santa, but they also found a second ancient Beringian individual. Um, oh. Yeah, so... The- okay, well, let's hang on to that, and let's go to break real quick. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and when we come back, we'll talk about our our new found ancestor. Digging in a trench, monuments, going to the pub when the We hope you're enjoying this episode. Please be sure to check out the show notes at www.archiefantasies.com for further information about our hosts, guests, and topics in this episode. This podcast is listener-supported, and we appreciate every donation, either in the time it takes you to rate and share this episode, or monetarily on Patreon and Ko-fi. You can connect with us on the blog, by email, or on Twitter. Thanks to all of our supporters. And let's get back to the show. Dinosaurs, raise your trials as one will call. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Hey everyone, and we are back, and I'm still here with Jennifer Raff, and we're talking about these two really awesome but incredibly dense papers. But we're we're getting through these, and I think we're making some headway here. I hope um, so. <laughs> No, I, th- I think we are because, like, I I feel like we have a very much clearer idea of how the the Americas were populated now. But you were saying that one of these papers, uh, on top of kind of not finding this this shared ancestor signal, they also located a new uh, descent ancestor. Okay, yeah. All right, let's get into this. Um, okay, so. <laughs> Uh, Native American, the ancestors of Native Americans, uh, as I said, they're not Native Americans themselves, but the ancestors of Native Americans diverged from um, populations in Siberia and East Asia. The best estimate we have is somewhere around like 25,000 years ago. That's the current can date. I, mm-hmm. Can I make one more caveat as we go forward? Can, yes. can we say the, the genetic ancestors? Yeah, genetic ancestors, right. That's good. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Or, and not all the right we even have to take a step back and say contemporary native americans have ancestry from multiple populations right so that's another caveat but i'm talking about ancient native americans to contact with outside groups right right all right having said that um so the divergence between let's call them the brins and that's going to get complicated in a minute but the divergence The divergence between the Beringians and the Siberians and East Asians happened about 25,000 years ago. Guess. Not guess. Okay. It's our best estimate. It's actually much better than a guess. Um, then something else happens. Then there's another division between the Beringians who became ancestral to Native Americans and another population of Beringians that are not ancestral to Native Americans. Yeah, I remember reading this in your article, and this yeah. was really interesting to me, too. So, yeah, what so, happened? So, what the way this was found out was, and I was sort of tangentially involved in this, um, there were uh, a couple of children buried at a site in Alaska, central Alaska, uh, which is called yeah, the Upward Sun River. In fact, I may even yeah, we talked about, about the, that. Yeah, 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 we talked about this last time on the show, and it was very interesting. But mm-hmm. so, these two indiv- two little girls, wasn't it? Um, I think so. I can't remember what the, I, 
got data from data from two of them, and then there was a third, um, and I can't remember which ones we got a hold uh, was gotten from. I wasn't involved in the whole genome work, just the mitochondrial work. Um, okay. But in any case, I think it was a little girl. Um, in any case, which is really sad. All these yeah. all these genetic stories are told by the, the remains of that's really depressing, actually. Um, <laughs> um, so this individual, the, um, their population was not ancestral to Native Americans. They were descended from a group that had split off from the Beringians that were ancestral to Native Americans. And okay. the split happened somewhere between like 22 to 18,000 years ago. So not too long after um, the Beringians diverged from Siberians, they split again into the lineage okay. that led to Native Americans and the one that one that led to the Upper Sun River uh, children. Okay. Well, this group, Eski Willerslow's group, has just found another member of that group, which, oh, nice. to make everybody completely confused, is called or ancient Beringians. <laughs> So they're ancient. They're all ancient Beringians, but the the ones that are not ancestral to Native Americans are called ancient Beringians. Don't I don't know. I don't like the way we're naming <laughs> these things, but that's okay. So, I feel like we're just running out of ideas, and they're just like I don't know. Just throw ancient in front oh, of it. It's yeah. good. Go. Okay. So the ancient Beringians, not ancestral to Native Americans, uh, seem to have lived in Alaska for some extended period of time, and. They Eski Willerslow's group has found another one, um, so that's very exciting, and it kind of tells us uh, a little bit more about their range as far as where they lived and uh, so forth. So, no, are there are there modern people attached to this no. genetic? As line? far as we can tell, there's nobody descended from these particular individuals. This particular group. Oh wow! So, yeah, it's cool. Um, yeah, it's really really interesting. And then there's another group that Eski Willerslow's group. Uh, research team found that's also unsampled they only found it as a trace in the genome of one group in uh central america i think maybe it was south america i, I can't remember off the top of my head okay and this other group has ancestry. this this group of contemporary uh, native americans has ancestry another group that appears to have diverged from the ancestors, other ancestors of Native Americans very early on. Like, So how many ancestor groups are we doing I mean, with right I now? I think we're up to uh, one, two, three, maybe four. Talking about this Australo-Melanesian signal, if that's real, then it might be four groups so far. Okay, so we've, so we've now come from, we started this show talking about two groups. <laughs> yep, that was. And we've... Two ancestral groups, and now we've we've doubled that. Yeah, and I should say, um, sorry for the confusion. Those two ancestral groups are actually descended from the one group in Beringia that's ancestral to Native Americans. So that one group, aside from the ancient Beringians, that one group moved into the Americas and then differentiated into the northern and southern branches. Okay, so they weren't differentiated before they I got here. I count that as so one group. <laughs> sorry. So we've got that group the ancestors of Native Americans. We've got the ancient Beringians who are not ancestral to Native Americans, but are closely related to their ancestors. We've got maybe this unsampled population that seems to have contributed a little bit of ancestry to one Native American group so far. And then we've got this mysterious Australo-Melanesian, they're calling it Population Y, uh, that that maybe existed. So it's getting really complicated. All right. Yeah, which I think is exciting. I love it, but it's hard to try. Now, I'm going to ask you something that you may not be able to answer. Okay. Are we finding, with the exception of the the ghost trace there that we're, we've been talking about, uh-huh. the, the trace that may or not may or may not be a trace, mm-hmm. do we have archaeological, physical archaeological evidence that backs up these these oh, different? That's groups? a really good question. Well. Because I, I know you're writing a book about this. I am, yeah. I haven't gotten quite that far. Yeah, I'm still stuck in Siberia right now. Um, but <laughs> what? So, so this is a challenge for the archaeologists because mm-hmm. I think that. Well, trying to. I, I ended. The, I ended my my blog for for Forbes talking about how the archaeological records and the genetic records are still not quite reconciled, right? Right. We obviously don't have a lot of evidence for people living in Beringia because it's underwater. 
So, right. I, you know, I was at a, a, a conference uh, a month or two ago and I, and they're asking me, us all, all the panelists, you know, what do you want to see? What's your message? And I said, I want Elon Musk to send his submarines <laughs> to, <laughs> to that area and let's use those to try and find some archaeological sites, right? We don't have direct evidence of people living in central Beringia. So that's kind okay. of a problem uh, for our models. Um, the archaeology, the, the genetic, I think, and the paleo-environmental data seem to, you know, have a, a decent coherent model, but it needs to be tested somehow. I don't know how. We do have maybe some um, archaeological evidence of people living in eastern Beringia. Um, at now, what what is eastern? What's what's modern day eastern Beringia? So modern day eastern Beringia is like uh, is Alaska. Um, okay, and. Basically, I'm trying to remember where it extends to. It kind of basically extends to uh, parts of Canada. So okay, um, that's the technical, you know, uh, extent of it. Um, Mackenzie River, I think, is is where it extends to. So okay. there are there's this one site uh, called the Bluefish Cave sites um, that maybe has some evidence of human occupation um, during the last glacial maximum. And a lot of archaeologists who I talk to are kind of dismissive of it. They're like, well, the evidence is cut marks on purported cut marks on human on um, scat and animals. And yes. um, I know what you're you know talking what I'm about. Talking yes, about. So it's been that. kind of disputed. Yeah. I have actually, um, you know, seen a talk that the author, the, the author of the study gave, and I was very convinced, but you know, I'm a geneticist. What do I know? Um, they look like cut marks to me, but you know, I mean, I'm with you. They look like cut marks, but it's, here's the thing. It's so old. It is very old. Yes. Like that's, that's the thing that's that we're yeah. coming down to. Yeah. One is. of the, one of the reasons, the other reason we're not having so much uh, evidence coming up is these, what you are talking about is really old. Yeah. And it's hard to find sites that go back oh, that sorry, far archaeologically. I'm not talking about, not talking about the, the California one. I'm talking about the 130,000 year old one. No, I don't. I don't buy that one at all. But oh no 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 yeah. no no no. I know I know what okay, you're talking okay, about. Yeah. I saw a picture of it go across Twitter. Okay. It's it's a uh, saw the cross section of it. They they look like cut marks to me. But mm. so I do. I don't think of it as all that. I mean, particularly old. It is LGM. But well, anyway, it. it it's out there. It's something we have to, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. think about. The other things right, right, right. we have to think about are sites like Meadowcroft, right? And some sites, right. some of those sites in in South America that are really old. And I, I'm not talking 130,000 year old. That's ridiculous. But you know, some of these older <laughs> sites, you know, they're getting up into the 20s, maybe pushing 30. I mean, that's kind of it's 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 controversial. And I know we don't like to talk about Meadowcroft, but you know, we have to think about these sites. We have to think about, you know, what do we do with them? What do we do with the older layers um, at uh, Monteverde, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's my challenge for archaeologists. I want, I want you guys to figure this out. <laughs> Let's stop shying away we'll get on from these oldest, oldest sites. Let's go back out and, you know, look at them and, and see if we can figure something out and come to consensus on them. Because, you know... Clovis was such a barrier for so long, you know, it's, it's, that barrier's gone. Let's, let's think about some of the pre-Clovis sites now and let's, let's try to revisit some of these ones that were sort of poo-pooed for various reasons. Um, I could imagine some scenarios in which there were people here early. Um, and I think we could make that, you know, we could find evidence for that genetically, um, maybe in some of these unsampled populations that are starting to pop up. I mean, I'm speculating here. And, and that's, you know, kind of fun to do, but I also get nervous speculating, but eh, eh, speculate know. carefully. It's yes, all right. Yeah. But, but I think that that's where the archeological and genetic records really need to be reconciled. We're not quite there yet. So uh, I'd like to see more work done with that. But well, we were also talking uh, on the breaks that, you know, it, it seems like this genetics, the genetic stuff is getting published a lot faster yes. than the archeological data is getting published. So being able to reconcile the two um, might just be hindered because of that. It could just be a publishing thing and people need to go publish their stuff. Yeah. Um, it's not because of a lack of 
interest on the part of both geneticists and archaeologists to work with one another. I mean, I, you know, I talk to archaeologists all the time who, you know, we're constantly speculating and trying to figure out, okay, how can we make this work? How can we figure out what are the commonalities? Where do these fit together? What things can we definitely exclude based on our data sets? But, um, yeah, we just have a lot of work to do. It's, it's, uh, we're not quite there yet. So I think we have a lot of surprises ahead of us in the future. I, I really hope so. And I mean, talking about, ah, so talking about the controversial sites. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not be afraid to talk about them. I mean, we don't have to just accept them, but you know, let's, let's figure out what they mean. Are they real? Are they not? You know? I, and, right. And, and that's, I think where we're coming up to. I mean, the other end of that is, one of the reasons why sites like that sometimes get, um, I'm not trying to justify, I am trying to justify this, but I'm not trying to justify it in a way it's like, well, the reason why, um, I just want people to understand that, like, this stuff does kind of cost money. I mean, it oh, yeah. doesn't kind of, it, it costs money. And especially in today's uh, climate for archaeological research, there's not a lot of money going around. And I think... I don't know. It seems to me like the reason why sites may not be getting revisited like Meadowcroft and, and sites like that is because if the site is that old, uh, we may not be equipped to handle it just yet. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be a very delicate site. You can't just go in there and tear everything out. I mean, you couldn't do that anyway, but you definitely don't want to do it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's going to take a lot of money mm-hmm. and we don't, we don't get a lot of money. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. <laughs> People like archaeology, but they don't like to fund it because yeah. it's, they don't understand that it's more than just people sitting there in the dirt playing around all day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it would, I'm like you, it would be really interesting to get back out into some of these older sites and definitely look at what has already been collected because that's what we've got right now. And that's, that's fine, but it would be nice to get back out there, get a little deeper, see how far down this stuff goes Mm. because i know one of the complaints that goes around the crm field is that we don't dig deep enough Mm. and it's not a metaphor they're literally saying we don't dig our holes deep enough to find stuff um yeah well i mean i've been out to um uh, the galt site you know in in texas and oh my god they dug really deep (laughs) i was you know um yeah the galt site they they've got yeah and they're an interesting place too it's very interesting <laughs> the deborah friedkin site you know there was just this paper published about some projectile points from there that are pre-clovis i you know i think there's i would love to hear the archaeologists take on this because i you know the ones that i talk to have very definite opinions but um yeah there's there's a lot out there that i think we need to reconcile and we need to be looking at the west coast because i think if there's one take-home message from these papers aside from all the regional stuff, the regional histories that we haven't even gotten into because it's just so massive. There's just so much to talk about, but they did a lot of work on looking at regional population histories in, um, uh, in Nevada, in Central America and South America. Um, but one of the take home messages is the rapidity of movement that people, you know, did to get through the, into the Americas. And, and, and I am becoming, well, I already was, uh, but I'm increasingly convinced that the initial peopling of the Americas had to have come down the West Coast. There's just, it does not work timing-wise with, um, you know, the, the sort of ice-free corridor. I, I think that, you know, I, I've been a fan of the um, West Coast migration um, model for a long time. But, you know, I just, I get increasingly convinced of it more and more as we see these new genomes showing, you know, really close uh, genetic relationships between North Americans and Central and South Americans. Now, just in case countries. someone isn't 100% aware of what the, the West Coast um, model is, can you briefly give <laughs> us a rundown of that? Because you're the archaeologist. <laughs> but um, yeah, so the notion is, this, this model is that uh, when you're looking at when the... Um, people could have uh, traveled into the Americas from um, Alaska. Well, Alaska's part of the Americas, but, you know, southward from Alaska. Uh, The question of timing comes up because, you know, North America was covered by this massive ice. Massive, yeah. Yeah, and you have to look at paleoclimate data to understand, like, when was it uh, accessible, travel uh, southward possible. And it looks like, although there is some people who disagree with me, uh, 
I won't bring that up, but there's some people who disagree quite strenuously, but it looks like the, uh, the West coast I think was open and um, accessible for travel much sooner than, than a pathway between the glaciers would have opened up uh, in North America. And even if that pathway between the glaciers went, you know, regardless of when it opened up, there was even a, um, a period of time when there wasn't anything living there. So you would have not really been able to live there uh, yourself. Right. There's nothing to hunt. Um, exactly. You have to have something to eat, right? And and wood, exactly. and wood to, you know, create start fires and so forth. So right. it looks, I think, increasingly uh, attractive, this model that people move down um, the West Coast. And for a long time, I thought, oh, yeah, that's a solid question. But then, you know, some archaeologists are, are disagreeing with that. So, I, you know, I always I have to remind myself not everybody thinks exactly the same way I do. And you know, well, I should make people are constantly. Yeah. People are constantly asking me, what what are actual controversies in archaeology? This, well, this is one. This of them. is one of them. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I feel like them. the genetic evidence is pretty clear, but you know, I do have some colleagues who disagree with me. So, you know, fair enough. But you also have the you have the benefit of not only the genetic evidence, but the ability to understand the genetic evidence. Just because you know it's there doesn't mean we all understand it. Right. Um, <laughs> so you have a unique perspective on that, yeah. whereas we're looking at artifact evidence, like right. as Ken's always saying, "Where's the garbage?" We're looking at the garbage. Right. Um, yeah. And, and if there's, if for us, if there's no garbage there, then there wasn't anything there. Yeah, and I guess I should point, you know, mention that, you know, part of this, the problem with this, um, this model, as with, you know, people living in central Beringia, is that, you know, it's flooded and we don't have yeah. archaeological yeah, yeah, evidence. Yeah, yeah. Although I guess there's some talk about some continental shelves being dating upright periods actually being exposed but i'm not really up on that so i'm, I'm yeah i'm not up on that 100 percent yeah. either maybe anyway. maybe i can find somebody who is yeah that would be cool. yeah. somebody can talk about this um anyway so so i think for people to move from basically from alaska to uh the oldest site monteverde in chile um in you know just a very very short period of time Right. It would have had to have been by boat. Uh, land travel would have been way too slow for that. And it would have had to have been by boat. And it makes a lot of sense for many reasons that that would have gone along the coast. Um, but, you know. That's- I mean, to be completely honest with you, I've seen models that show that. And to my eye, I feel like it is a reasonable proposition mm-hmm. um, to suggest that. So yeah. I'm not against it i just i don't think i'm in any one particular camp over the other fair enough <laughs> before before we go off air though you wanted to talk about the ethics yes. uh, that are yes. popping up around this so yeah, can, thank you for reminding me yeah um I, so, i'm always up for a good ethical discussion so. yes okay so i was encouraged by these papers because i i talk a lot about and think a lot about sort of the ethics of these of doing ancient dna research in the americas with ancestors of indigenous peoples um and I am lucky that I'm, I belong to a consortium we call SING Consortium, or the Summer Internship for Indigenous Peoples and Genomics. Um, and this is a group that, I mean, I had nothing to do with the founding. I just um, I was a faculty member, at a, you know, from time to time, and I participate in, in some of their endeavors. Um, but this group um, is a, a, a group of indigenous geneticists and nice yeah it's, it's really cool indigenous geneticists and you know we call ourselves non-indigenous allies um who work together to try to more ethical um thoughtfulness in the part of geneticists working in the americas and, and actually around the world um and one of the major major goals is um, capacity building in native american communities or indigenous communities around the world you know, training people to become geneticists themselves from that community. Right. Right. It's, it's for all kinds of reasons, really important that, um, that we have indigenous people doing this work. Well, anyway, um, the same consortium just authored earlier this year, two papers, um, that put forth some recommendations. The one that I worked more on was, um, regarding, uh, paleogenomics or research with ancients, um, ancestors of indigenous peoples and we we put some guidelines out there for how you know we thought that work could be done um or ought to be done and it involves some you know recommendations that like talk to communities who are likely descended from this ancient individual and see how they feel about doing this kind of research and you know stuff like that which seems like they're no-brainers right but (laughs) not you know and and i i gotta say there are a number of um researchers who already do this including uh people I have worked with, my mentors, um, and I try to 
our footsteps of, you know, never doing ancient DNA research without doing consultation um, and making sure that, you know, we have uh, permissions and agreements. Or if the research has already been done or started, you know, it happened in the past, you go back and you reconsult uh, likely descendants, right? So, um, so we've been kind of advocating for these ideas for a while and some people have already been doing it, but the fact that these two papers actually had um, ethics statements, you know, referencing these papers that we put out and, you know, talking about how they met those standards, I think is really encouraging. I was, I was delighted to see that they did that. Um, that is really cool. Because these are the two big research, biggest research groups in paleogenomics um, in, in the Americas. And I, I hope, I think that, you know, where they lead, others will follow. Uh, even though, you know, some people have been doing it already, but it's, you know, it's great to see these guys doing that. And and in fact, they had done it with some previous papers too. But um, it, you know, the fact that recently referenced these guidelines, geneticists, um, I thought it was wonderful. And if you want to read more about this, um, Young, uh, the writer for The Atlantic, he has a wonderful article about that, uh, which I think I linked to in piece uh, for Forbes, if you want to find it, but yeah, he's he's can really you, good at writing about. Issues. Can you give us that name one more time? Yeah, Ed Young. Ed it's, Young. Ed Young. Yeah, he's an amazing science writer for the Atlantic. Everybody should be following him anyway. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> I think I do actually. Probably he's a, he's such a wonderful writer. Uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of that uh, a really neat thing to come out of these papers. Now I haven't had a chance to sit down with uh, some of my indigenous colleagues and talk to them about the specifics of. You know, how do they view what was done um, as far as consultations in these papers? Um, and so, you know, I kind of should temper my enthusiasm by, you know, saying, well, I don't know what they think of this yet or what they think of the specifics. But I'm, I'm pleased that, you know, people are paying attention, starting to really, really talk about um, these issues. And that's good because, you know, it's it, it's super, super important that we yeah. think about you know, the ancestors, the descendants of, the, of these ancient people and, and how they feel about research being done. And and if they say, you know, we're uncomfortable with this, then we don't do the research. It's as simple as that. So, you know. I I have had a very similar argument um, recently on Twitter with archaeologists across the pond. Ah. And it's, the, the thing that I have figured out is not having, I've, I want to say we in America are kind of in a special situation and it's a good special situation because we still have distinct living uh, indigenous peoples who are vocal and organized Mm -hmm. um, so that we're used to, well, we as archaeologists should be used to this whole concept of um, consulting with indigenous peoples before we go do things um like you're suggesting consult before researching we're kind of like i feel like the generation that's coming up after us is just this is just going to be how it works for them like yeah you have to ask first and that's how that goes mm-hmm. um obviously before us it wasn't necessarily a thing yeah well um, I, mean, I say you know honestly when i did my phd research you know i didn't do consultation i was working with a right. quote-unquote un- unaffiliated group and it was fine right uh, and I regret that, and I won't publish any more from from that work because you know I I learned afterwards. Well, that's not okay, you know. So yeah, I mean, people need to understand that these are living peoples we're talking. Exactly. About. That's why I was asking these questions that I was asking. Like, are there still descent groups from these people? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, because of our because we interact with our our indigenous groups as much as we do. I mean, we we have things like one of the reasons I was like, we have to call them genetic descendants yes. is because I know that there are native groups that are very much against the whole concept of this, um, the migration across Beringia because their, their oral tradition states that they have always been here. Absolutely. And that's a and knowledge that we should respect and you exactly. know, be mindful that's of. An, yeah. 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 That's something we need to be respectful of. I mean, I can't walk in there and tell you, no, you're wrong, because I have evidence. Absolutely, yeah. Well, and especially because, you know, we find increasingly that, you know, indigenous knowledge is, it's so important, and it's, 
a lot of times it's like, well, duh, you know, a scientist will come along and say, oh, I discovered this thing. And they're like, we've known that always. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's just there's a lot yeah. of hubris on the part of scientists, um, which is not to say that, you know, what we're finding about history is incorrect. But I no. think there's a lot of work that can be done perhaps on our parts to talk about it in a, in a more respectful and, you know, more humble sensitive and, and sensitive way. way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, thank you very much for coming on to the show. Um, I really hope you come back when you get that third paper read. And, <laughs> I will. <laughs> uh, if you haven't, to our listeners, if you haven't read the article yet, we'll have it in the show notes with some other links. So please go check that out. And um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Extrapolating from a single stone the extent of a whole complex and then publishing it. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider donating to us on Patreon or Kofi. Either option helps us out. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on the blog, www.archiefantasies.com, and like and share us wherever you can. You can follow us on Twitter at Archiefantasies, or you can reach us by email at Archiefantasies at gmail.com. That's A R C H Y fantasies at gmail.com theme music was provided by archaeosuit productions this episode was produced and edited by sarah head no we don't do dinosaurs we don't do dinosaurs see are you happy do you get it now do you get it honestly